You are listening to A Taste of Romumu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romumu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. My name is Jill. I'm a Jill Hammer. I'm a member of Romumu. I'm very excited to be offering this class. Um, I'd like for people to go around and say your name. And uh, one question you have about uh, the topic of our class. My question is, what are you all going to teach me? <laughs> oh, sure. Hi, I'm Misha Liu. Uh, wow, I feel like there are a lot of, I mean, I came very late to Torah study. And I'm so eager to go deeper in this way and look from the lens of women. So um, I'm just very excited to be in the class. I'm just wondering why for... for Name? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Jane Tier. I'm a member of Romu. And um, I'm just curious about, you know, for years, anytime I was in any conversation that had to do with divinity and Judaism, I never heard a mention of the Divine Feminine, and I'm very curious to find out how that happened. to discover that it is. And I'm curious to know why in, in certain discussions it, it's ignored. Great question. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Wonderful. Just the camera clock counter for a minute. Can you just tell us your name and the question you have? Um, question I have? Well, my name's Graham. I'm also a member of Ramavu. And the question I have... Okay, I can put it to words, really. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'm Howard Tier, and uh, I've always, always been open and interested in the uh, point of view of the feminine, and especially uh, not only in in Judaism but in the world as a whole. And uh, so I'm also want to know, as Jane said, I'm very interested in seeing where in our tradition that that's, uh, manifests itself. I'm Leona Strasberg Steiner. Um, my question is um, twofold. How many faces of the Shekhinah will I actually encounter, and what will they look like? I'm Karen Freed, and I too am a member of Romo and a um, and a, a student of Jill Hammer. I'm happy, so happy to be here. Um, 
I'm very interested in the women's um, energy um, of the divine, and and I feel that in some ways um, she has been ignored or written out or um, obscured in some way, and so I'm looking to reveal, you know, places that she hides and the places that she is, so that I can connect to her and. I think to my own feminine energy. I'm Jamie Askin, and I'm also a member of Rumor Mill. And um, I I chose my Hebrew name as Yamina Shachina, which is like loosely for, for me. It meant that I'm, I'm the helper of God and the divine form. And I'm also seeking and wanting to know more about the place of the Shekhinah in sacred Jewish texts. I'm Amy Rosenthal. I'm a new member. Um, I guess my question would be, how can I take what I learn in here to help enrich my life and um, make me more in contact with God? <coughs> Excuse me. I'm Audrey Lebner also a member of Grammar Mill. Um, I took this class mainly because she was teaching it, <laughs> just to be really honest. And um, and I've been begging and wanting it, and uh, she answered me and said, okay. Um, and my search has always been for the Divine Feminine, and um, it's in Kabbalah, which I study also, and I would like to bring it forward here to hear it more. Uh, I'm Susan, Susan Shore, also a member, <coughs> and uh, I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to learn with you, Jill. So, I, I think in terms of my life and my learning and kind of the earliness of my Judaism learning, uh, I, I want to figure out what it means to bring the Shekhinah into my life, my being, my praying. So I don't know how that will happen, so how might it happen is my question. I'm Judy Hollander, and I'm not a member of the Yes, and so I've already been studying with Jill in this topic, but I feel like I wanted uh, this might be a way for me to organize my understanding, get a little deeper, be able to articulate more, maybe about what I might believe. Uh, my name is Judith C. Miller, but in the last two years I've been using a different name, which most of you don't know. I'm embarrassed to say it here because it totally acknowledges uh, the feminine and the Shekinah. My, I have been calling myself Goddess Hudichi for two years. Um, and out of this context, a lot of people know me as that. So um, I'm taking that on into myself. Um, uh, and my question is, how can I and how can I enter into the knowledge deeply without uh, much information about Judaism and Hebrew and traditional study? Can I and how can I? 
Hi, I'm Marlena Steiner. I am a member happily, and um, since I've joined, I've become really interested in learning about Judaism. Again, it's, it stopped. When I was in Israel, I went to a religious school till I was nine years old, and then it stopped when we came here totally. And so I want to get back to it, and one of the things that I've always wrestled with is where is the feminine perspective um, in religion? And having a daughter, I want to empower her with with the feminine as well as myself. And so I have all the questions in the world because I know nothing, and I'm so excited to to learn to start. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm Andrea Schwartz, and uh, I didn't care what the topic was. <laughs> I just came because I wanted to study with you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Arthur Fried, and it's perfect. I get to uh, mimic Andrea. For me, it was the opportunity to learn with Reb Jill. Thank you. I'm really honored that you're all here. So two more preliminary things before we get started. Um, at the uh, retreats that I run at Isabel Friedman, uh, one of the uh, spiritual practices that we have is that we often create a sacred space by making a sacred center, like our ancestors did, like uh, Abraham and Sarah did by making an altar. Uh, and it's an important spiritual practice for me um, because it connects me to my earliest ancestors who I feel were, uh, were kind of on top of this information about the divine feminine maybe in a certain way. Uh, uh, but also because for me to, to make uh, the spirit concrete is very important. And I feel that the, the, the mind-body split in the Western consciousness has to be healed. Right, that we have spent you know, many thousands of years, or anyway, a few thousand years, you know, separating, right, this is spirit and this is body, and this is heaven and this is earth. Uh, so for me to have sacred space that is both embodied and, and uh, spiritual is very important. So I realized when we came into the space and there was no center and I, I hadn't brought anything, but I was just at an event where a friend of mine walked up to me and handed me a jar of Jerusalem snow <laughs> that she had brought all the way from the land of Israel. So there it is. This is the jar of Jerusalem snow. And it's wonderful because there's a mystical teaching that when God makes the world, God starts with snow from under the divine throne. Uh, so it's actually lovely that at our uh, at our beginning uh, class that we uh, were starting with snow. Um, and uh, I want to invite um, that as, uh, as the course goes on, uh, that you feel free to bring things that are sacred to you, uh, particularly maybe things pertaining to the topic of that week, uh, to, to be a part of our sacred center. So if that practice speaks to you, please feel free to do that. I also want to acknowledge that we were in a funeral home. Uh, and you know, for some of you, that might have you know been a thing, um, and that you know we're in a sacred space where you know people are cared for as they're you know, transitioning, uh, you know, from being a body to being whatever we are after we're bodies. Uh, and so the shlin is already here, uh, and I just I would like to open um, maybe tonight and, and and maybe briefly every night that we are together, but with offering a you know, our prayers uh, for the people who are coming through Easter's, uh, people uh, who have died and people who are mourning as who have died. Um, and with that, I would like to teach a song. And the words to the song are like this. Um, 
Anu Matsanu Manukha. Can you say that? Anu Matsanu Manukha. So that means we have found rest. Mitachat. So the whole thing means we have found rest beneath Shekhinah's wings. Anu matsanu menucha mitachat kanfei ha-Shekhinah. So I'll yadadai it first, and then we'll put the words in. Welcome. Come on in. There are some chairs back here. Some that can be brought. There's a chair over here. Okay. the time that we're learning together. And uh, 
So in most of our classes, we'll, you know, we'll be getting into text pretty quickly after we open. But I feel that before I start to teach about the Shekhinah, I should tell you why I care um, and sort of why this topic is important to me. So I want to say a little bit about that. And then I'm going to spend the rest of the time working with you to understand a little bit of where this word Shekhinah comes from and to begin to lay some of the very early foundations, uh, biblical foundations, for uh, why we retained in Judaism the imprint of the divine feminine. Uh, so we're really, in each class, we're really going to go from the bottom up. We're going to start with our earliest biblical ancestors, and we're going to build from there. We're going to look at different uh, times and places in Jewish history where we began to see this image, uh, the image of God as a woman. Uh, and you'll see that you know that those images, like other God images we may be familiar with, are very diverse. We're not only talking about an image of a mother or an image of a of a, a lover or an image of um, you know any um, any other image that you might imagine. That it's actually a diverse uh, it, it's a very diverse um, field uh, that we're going to be uh, cultivating together. So I want to say that when I, my, my parents really set me up for this, because when I was little, um, my parents brought me a Bible, uh, but they didn't send me to Sunday school for a while. So for a while, I just had this Bible, you know, so I read it, and, you know, I absorbed a lot of it. But they also bought me lots of books of myth. So I read Greek myth and Norse myth and Hawaiian myth. You know, and uh, at a certain point in my religious education, I began to become aware that there was, you know, the, at least a potential conflict, right? That I was reading all of these wonderful myths, and I was also participating and in, in investing in a monotheistic tradition. Um, and on some level, I had the question, you know, that I, I was very enamored of Torah and very enamored of Judaism, but I wanted to know where Artemis was, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a very... Um, I had a very intense spiritual relationship with sacred text from an early age, uh, but also a very intense spiritual relationship with nature. Um, and although I don't wish to buy into you know the typical Western split in which you know women are nature and men are something else, you know men are I don't know ideas or something. Um, there there is a traditional association between, um, often between the sacred feminine and, and the earth, which we'll talk about. We'll talk about why it is and why it's problematic and why it can be interesting. Um, but I felt that also. I used to talk to the moon a lot when I was little. I would talk to Mother Moon before I went to sleep and, and Orion. So the world was very alive for me. <coughs> but I really wasn't aware that, you know, that kind of language uh, had any place in my tradition. It was not till decades later that I heard the Zohar calling the Shekhinah the moon. <coughs> right? I was not aware that Judaism had that sort of language about God. Um, when I began to, well, actually, even before I go there, what I do, when I got to college, I discovered full on the Talmud and feminist poetry. So that set me up for another layer of this, because I was at the same time absorbing Jewish tradition, uh, but I was also encountering all kinds of uh, liturgy and other things that people were writing to try to grapple with the frequent absence of marginalized voices in Jewish tradition, and in particular, uh, the voice of women. Uh, that 
you know, many of the texts did not, um, you know, that, that, you know, the Talmud was mostly written in the voices of men. Jewish tradition was mostly written in the voices of men, and not just all men, right, but, you know, educated Jewish men of a particular class. Um, and what it was very difficult to discern what might have been going on with anybody else, um, and particularly what might have been going on uh, with uh, you know, with women. They talked about women, but there weren't a lot of voices of women. Um, I should parenthetically note that sadly, most of the texts we're going to study are not by women. Right, most of them are by uh, Kabbalists, right, and uh, and uh, you know whoever right authored the you know the early um, the early biblical texts. We don't really know, uh, but we're still going to have trouble with that question, right? Of sort of who for whom were the for whom were these images important? Right. For whom was it important that God looked like this or like that? Right. So we're we're going to continue to be asking that question. You know, why did the people who wrote these texts write them, and who else might they have been important to? But for me to encounter, and and so immediately when I began reading this modern poetry, I found the word shechina. Oh, who's that? Right. That was not a word that I knew. So I'm going to try in the next sessions to introduce to you what I began to discover on my own, which was to look at, so I had mostly been told right, that you know, God was genderless, sort of, but also had all these you know, pronouns and attributes that made God appear to be male. And depending on who I was talking to, people thought that was a big deal or didn't think it was a big deal. Um, right, the two uh, you know, voices on that, in my experience at that time, tended to be either well, we all know after Maimonides that God doesn't have personal attributes, so it doesn't really matter what gender we call God, and we're used to calling God He, and you know that's okay because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really change anything about God, right? And you know the one other point of view, which was, but that actually changes a great deal, right? Because if you live in an environment where God is always referred to in the masculine, right, that causes you to relate to your gender in a particular way. Right, if you're somebody who shares that pronoun with God, or if you're someone who doesn't share that pronoun with God, um, right, that may cause you to have certain feelings about your own identity, who you are, how you relate to God. So I'll, you know, I'll let us talk about that question of right, how much does it matter? Uh, but regardless of how we might relate to those pronouns, what's interesting to note that is that Judaism retained what I would call a minority voice, but nevertheless a very present voice in which there was this um, this other way of looking at God, uh, often viewed as a complementary way, in which God appeared as a some sort of feminine counterpart to God. So the question I want to begin to explore with you is how come? Like why? You know, why would that, in, in a tradition where God doesn't need a spouse, right, or a mother, or a, you know, any of those things, why would that minority voice be retained? And where does it come from? Uh, and so I became fascinated with that question. Um, and I should say that I became fascinated with it not just as an intellectual inquiry, uh, but because it was an image that spoke to me. I felt very moved by the idea of having a divine mother. You know, when I was a kid, God was sort of this fatherly looking cloud. You know, that was lovely. I was very happy with that. Um, there was something very moving, and I have to say shocking. I didn't actually like the image the first time I encountered it. Um, uh, and, and I've seen this experience in people. The first time you call God she in liturgy, 
a lot of people go, whoa, what just happened to God? <laughs> right? You think you have a gender-neutral God? Wait till you shift pronouns. You will discover that actually your God wasn't so gender-neutral because if God was gender-neutral, it wouldn't matter if you shifted pronouns. Right? But I actually have seen people like, whoa, <laughs> what, what, you know, God changed shape, what happened? Um, so something matters, right? And so I'll leave it to us to figure out, well, what matters? Because, you know, if God doesn't have a body, you know, what does it even mean to say that God has gender? Um, and I'm not proposing that God has gender, whatever we all, you know, whatever each of us imagines God to be. Uh, but that it seems to be important to people to name God as having gender some of the time. And that's a question that I want to I wanna explore. Um, and I found that it mattered to me. And I've shared this in a, in a sermon once that maybe some of you heard, but I, I, I think I will, I, I will share briefly again. Um, this all came home to me in a very vivid way. You know, I'd been working with God and pronouns and rewriting liturgy, you know, for a long time. And then I had a dream in which God appeared as a giant pregnant woman. <laughs> and suddenly I was like, and when I woke up, one of the things that I thought, among other things, it was a magnificent dream. I thought, oh, I finally got it. You know, I internalized it. Because just because you use the language doesn't mean right, that it sits anywhere in you. Right? It doesn't mean that you know, if you hear the language, right, it doesn't mean that you actually relate to it right, on any deep, in any deep way. So the dream showed me right, that I had connected to the language, that it meant something to me. But it wasn't just a sort of a political question. Well, let's call God she, because that's fair, and we all agree that that's fair. So let's just, you know, let's be fair about things. And, and all fairness are the creators of life. Well, we're going to talk about that, right? Because one of, the, one of the things that becomes hard when you begin to notice gender in our tradition and in the Bible is that, right, when you depict the creator God, right, as a male God, Right. One of the things that that does is it shifts very much the emphasis away from women as sources of fertility. Right. And notice in Genesis how often you get the story. Woman is barren. She prays to God. God makes her fertile. Right. Right. The fertility does not rest inside the woman. Fertility is God's to grant or not to grant. Right. That is the, so that's the theology that is created by those stories. Um, you know, what happens in most of the creation myths in the ancient Near East is that you know, a creator goddess gets pregnant, right? Or she makes something out of earth, or she, right? And which is actually similar to what God does in Genesis. And then there are, you know, people or, or you know, other gods, and, you know, then things proceed from there. Uh, but the shift away from fertility language, right, you know, was it, among, it, it means a lot of things that that happened. It's a shift from image to word, right? A shift from sort of the birthing image to God as creator with words. Uh, but one of the things that it means is that women don't get invested with divine power, right? We're really just, you know, doing our job that God assigned us like anybody else, right? But there, there's, right, the divine power of birth does not inhere in women, right? Or in men, right, to be fair, right? The Bible doesn't assume that either. Um, so that's one of the things that may have changed in our ancestors' consciousness when this language changed. You know, it was thousands of years ago, we don't really know, but that's, uh, that is certainly something that appears to be the case. That when you see all these stories about barren women, right, and, and God granting fertility, you begin to see that a certain argument is being made, right? Um, that, uh, right, the, the title, creator of life, shifts from the goddess, right, to Eve, 
as a, who as a human being is called, right? The, uh, she's uh, the she's uh, Adam says to her because you're you know, you you are the mother of all life. Right before that, the title "Mother of All Life" belongs to a, a divine feminine figure. So that's a big shift, right? That's a big shift that happened in our in, in the you know early days of our becoming a, a people, um, and we don't usually talk about it. Right? It's not something that we tend to notice, right? We, if anything, we say, "Oh, you know, there were all these pagan myths, you know, which gods were fighting and having sex, and you know, and then we have Genesis, and everything is so much calmer, you know, and isn't that wonderful?" Um, and uh, you know, and in many ways, it is wonderful, right? But there's a, uh, you know, but there is stuff that isn't there, right? That you know, changed, right? Changed our consciousness as human beings. Uh, so one of the fascinating things about the topic we're going to explore together is that after all the trouble the Bible took to take that stuff out, the Kabbalists come along and put it back in. <laughs> They're like, oh, you know, it's boring. You know, God doesn't have any lovers. You know, God doesn't have any family relationships. You know, <laughs> um, let's, let's put it back in. So, you know, which is weird, right? Um, it's really quite radical and interesting that Jewish tradition can't quite, can't quite leave it. You know, it's like the, the early Torah, you know, sort of writes that out, and somehow it keeps coming back. You know, in every generation, there's this. So I want to posit for you that there is a certain psychic need, I would argue, for the sacred feminine. Right? Perhaps not for all of us, but for many of us, there is, and certainly for civilizations in general, there is a certain psychic need uh, to have, right, you know, to have the projected parent figure, right, have both genders. And that seems to keep returning, right? That as much as Jewish tradition tries to create this somewhat androgynous father figure and, you know, and have that as the, as the primary image, the secondary image keeps returning, um, which is very interesting. And, uh, and for me, it was very telling because for me, it kept returning also. I couldn't get off it. I couldn't forget about it. It was so powerful to me to imagine praying to a divine mother, uh, to imagine being with a, you know, a divine being that was a little girl, you know, or was a wise woman. That was so powerful to me. And I'm still trying to figure out why. Um, but part of it has to do with the sense of being made in God's image, right? What does it mean to be made in God's image? You know, are, are we made in God's image? Are, are we of the same, you know, are we in some way of the same substance as God? And some of it has to do with, with, you know, whatever human need we have for that, you know, for love to come in that form. So I want to stop there. I've said a lot, and maybe folks have questions or comments or similar journeys. Um, and then I want to do a little history. Work. So does anybody want to talk, say anything? What does that bring up? Yeah. Our so turn. what about the uh, story of the rib? Uh-huh. So, yeah. So, um, it's not uncommon for human beings in, in ancient myths to be made out of mud. Right? That's sort of what we get made out of, is mud. You know, people put earth and water together, and they get mud. And they get human beings. Um, and mud, I guess. They get mud. <laughs> they get, right. um, so, if I were to read that from sort of a feminist Freudian point of view, right, what I would say is, so this is actually a reverse birth story. Right, I could even say, right, in the same way that Freud posits that, you know, there's such a thing as having envy of the phallus, right, some feminist psycho psychoanalysts have posited that there's such a thing as having womb envy, 
right? And this text represents, so Adam is making the woman, right? The woman is being made out of his body, right? Which is something that, you know, at least on the surface of things, right? That's not how it works. It works the other way, um, right? Men are made out of women's bodies, right? At least, you know, in the most dramatic ways. Um, and so one answer I might give is, so that's actually another way of subverting the feminine, right? It's a way of, right, taking the role of the feminine and sort of assigning it to the masculine. Now, you could say there's something good about that in that it actually allows God to take on an androgynous role, right? God is uh, sort of, God is the father, but God has motherly qualities also. And we see this in other places in the Jewish uh, tradition. Um, but I could also say, right, this is yet another place where because the Bible is uncomfortable with divine feminine images, right, the feminine image is actually uh, transmuted into a masculine image, right? So that's one thing I could say about the Rube story. Um, yeah. What about Lilith, and how was she born? Okay. So um, we're not going to do Lilith, because she's not for another thousand years. Um, um, so right, just to just so I say something about what Judith just said, so there is this character named Lilith, who actually does exist at that time period, but isn't Eve. Um, she, Lilith begins as some sort of demonic figure in the ancient Near East, and at some point becomes like another Eve, like Adam's first wife, who is too egalitarian for to be happy there and sort of flies away and becomes a demon who steals babies. Um, you know, talk about, you know, fantasy of what women would do if they were actually independent, right? They would fly away and, you know, steal babies. Steal, steal babies. babies. Sure. And, you know, <laughs> steal men's sperm. I mean, that's what Lilith does. Yeah. Um, but but the rabbinic myth of Lilith, which is you know about her flying away from Adam, doesn't doesn't happen for a while. We are going to do it, but not today. Um, yeah. So it's actually going to be maybe for some of us hard to keep the layers of this clear because there's a lot of there's a lot of layers of time here. So because the same text keeps getting read by different time periods, uh, so we'll uh, we'll try I'll try to put some benchmarks so that it's clear sort of what's happening in which era. Okay. So I sent you guys, many of you, a text packet. I don't think I sent it to all of you because I didn't have the names of everybody when I sent it. Um, just, did some people bring it? Yeah. No. no. Um, Do you want Yes, an email. Do you, you want to start, right. start one around? That would be really wonderful. So how many texts do we have? Can people raise their hands? I can see how many people have. Two, three, four, five. So it looks like we have enough to share. Um, that's, that's amazing. That's not my phone. I should tell you this. Okay. So if you have a packet, you're looking for pages 7 through 11. The one that's... Yes. You're looking for a page that looks like this, like a page of the Bible. Okay? It's on page 7. <laughs> Do you want anything? Should I set such a name and email? Name and email is great. Do you want me to slip between the two of you? I'll let you share this. Sure. <laughs> Do you want me to yeah, I can also somebody and, and, and phone number. Phone number in case we have to call abruptly for some reason. Okay. 
Great. So this is actually um, not from this week's Parsha, but on the topic of this week's Parsha. Um, we're going to look at a text about the tabernacle. So this is why. Um, the first, um, the most, let me say, not the first, the most dominant trend in terms of describing God in the feminine comes through, begins actually as a non-gendered image. And the non-gendered image is the image of the divine cloud that covers the Mishkan, that covers the tabernacle. So in the Torah, this cloud is called Kavod Adonai. Right? It's not called Shekhinah, although it, in rabbinic text it's called Shekhinah. But in the Bible it's called Kavod Adonai, the glory of Adonai. Um, and if you just want to see what this is... So this is actually the entire uh, putting up of the tent of meeting. Moses is creating the whole sacred space. He's putting up the lampstand, which, by the way, is the symbol of the divine feminine, uh, the um, the menorah, um, that you know that stylized tree with the almond blossoms, right? The original, right? The, the person who's depicted with stylized trees in the land of Israel is Asherah, who is the the uh, sort of the the um, mother of the deities in that pantheon. So probably the menorah is actually a reframed, recreated, um, because there was, we know, an Asherah pole. There was a pole rep or a tree representing the goddess in the temple. We're not, I'm not making this up. It's in the Book of Kings. Um, it was there up until about two-thirds of the existence of the temple. And then maybe, if you buy the Bible story, there was a purge by King Josiah, um, who had a monotheistic purge and took out all kinds of things in the temple that he thought shouldn't be there, and one of them was the Asherah. Um, but up until that point, uh, there was a representation of the mother goddess in the temple. Um, according to the Bible, this was a terrible heresy, right? You can have your own opinion about that. Uh, but that, that is what the Book of Kings says, that it was there, and that it was removed uh, at some point. Um, this was a tree? This was, well, it's, we don't know. We don't know exactly. The Asherah um, is sometimes described as a tree and sometimes described as a pole. And early pole dancing. Right, probably both. <laughs> right? Right. That's funny. But but not inaccurate in that it, it is a fertility symbol. But probably it was originally a grove, or it was originally a sacred grove. And then as human beings do, things become more symbolized, right? You leave the sacred grove and you end up with a, a pole that represents the sacred tree, like a maypole. Right. Um so Moses is setting up the uh, the menorah. He's putting the poles in the ark. He's you know uh, lighting the incense. And if you look on your page um, eight, at the bottom, so maybe let's start in verse um, let's start in verse twenty eight. And would one or two people just read between uh, verse twenty eight and verse thirty eight? Anybody have it and willing to read? Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Then he put up the screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. At the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, he placed the altar of burnt offering. On it he offered up the burnt offering and the meal offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put the water in it for washing. From it, Moses and Aaron and his sons would wash their hands and feet. They wash when they entered the tent of meeting, 
and when they approached the altar, as the Lord had commanded, as the Lord had commanded Moses, and he set up the enclosure around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the screen for the gate of the enclosure. Okay, so let's stop there for just one second. This comes from where? This comes, this is the very end of the book of Exodus. Um, and it comes at the, after the whole process of building the Mishkan and designing it and making all the stuff and donating all the stuff. Right now, Moses is actually putting it together. Right. What's the right. name of the Parsha? Pikudei. Pikudei. Okay. Yeah, it's the very last Parsha. It's the very last segment of the book of Exodus. Um, so what do you get? So, so some of the prominent objects here, right, there's a laver. Very interestingly, the, la the, the, the laver is made out of mirrors, and the mirrors are donated by women. And the, and the women are called sovot, and we don't know what that is. What um, washing a washing basin. Oh, okay. it's a washing basin. Um, it's used, you know, like you, you probably have seen this outside a mosque, right? Like a sacred, a place for sacred washing, or even a kosher restaurant, you know, the place with the washing. Uh, but that um, washing is one uh, symbol. It's one ritual activity you do when you're entering a sacred place, right? Just that you're washing. Um, so there's washing, and there's also what else is here? Yes, there's offering. So we know that there's connection between God and people going on. And what else? There seems to be a difference between difference between the burnt offering and the meal offering. Okay. They burnt them both. Yes. Screen. Screen. Okay. So what does the screen imply to you? Hidden. Yep. Separation. Okay. Hidden separation. Yeah. So there's something going on behind the screen that we maybe shouldn't be seeing, right? Something that is being separated, that is making, that is being made holy, right? Uh, one way that you see that something is extra special, right, is that it's set off from other things. Okay. So now let's see what happens behind the screen. Thank you. When Moses had finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting, of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their various journeys. But if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until such time as it did lift. For over the tabernacle, a cloud of the Lord rested by day and fire would appear in it by night, in the view of the house of Israel throughout their journeys. Thank you. Good luck with that. So, what about this cloud? What do we know about the cloud? It settles and it lifts. Okay, so it moves. It moves. Great, it moves with this holy place. It fills the space. Yeah, what in, what in what way does it fill the space? Like, what do you what, what do you sense? Can, so you can see it, right? I was you well, I was just like listening and trying to yeah, you know, make a picture of this in my head. So what does it look like in your vision of it? In in I, I um that it is not only above the space but mm -hmm. goes down mm -hmm. and and. Fills the space. Okay, so the space that they've created is being filled by this cloud. The cloud's alive. The cloud is mm -hmm. moving. It's mm -hmm. not stationary. Even right. when it's still, it's moving. It's, it's evolving or churning. Mm -hmm. 
He also gives them signs of, of movement. Right. Shall I, shan't I? So, so it gives, it, there's a message. And how do they know what the message was? But I guess if the cloud was descended, you couldn't really see anything, so you couldn't go anywhere. Well, if the cloud was going somewhere, you were following it. If the cloud wasn't going anywhere, you were staying put. So how did you know to follow the cloud? It didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they seem, that seems to be clear from the time of the, when they leave, you know, the second right. they leave the, from Egypt, right? Um, Moses is telling them, but great, so the cloud is actually, Jamie's making the point, the cloud is not speaking, the cloud is not about words, right. the cloud is showing them something, yeah. right? It's a thing, it's a, it's a, it's not speaking, okay? So, it, but it's parallel, so mm -hmm. they, it's, it, they're mirroring each other, so the people are connecting to it and mm -hmm. responding to the cloud, and so there's a connection between God and the people in the movement. Can you talk, yeah, um, Arthur, Judith, and then <clears throat> So usually you think about clouds as being permeable, mm -hmm. but there's something impermeable about this cloud because it's inhibiting his ability to go into the, to enter the uh, tabernacle. Right. So the cloud fills the tabernacle in such a way that Moses can no longer go in there. So we don't know if that means that he, you know, it's literally like it's like a you know a hollow roll, you know, like he can't right. It's it's a solid thing. Or if it means it might mean it's dangerous to go in there now because the cloud is there. But in some way, the cloud is is uh, is tangible. It's concrete. You can touch it. You can it can displace other things. So it's uh, it's solid. So that's interesting, right? Most of us grew up with a disembodied God, right? We have here a cloud that you can see and touch, and it can you know fill up a space. This is open So the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? Is it the tent? Is it another object? So the tabernacle or the mishkan, which is actually where we get the word shekhinah, mishkan means the place, the dwelling place, mm -hmm. um, is a sh is a portable shrine. It gets taken down and put back up in a variety of locations, and it contains the um, the tablets of the covenant and the cherubim and empty space and um, and all these sacred things are carried when they have to be moved. So it's, um, it's an object in the tent of me. No, the, the tabernacle is the is the uh, is the whole structure. Oh, okay. It's the whole structure. Yeah. So I have this sudden image of uh, this following image of when my kids were little, and I would come in, and they would sort of latch on to me and just sort of follow me wherever I went, and I, like little ducklings. <laughs> and I used to say to my mother. I need some space. I need to get away from them. But it was done lovingly, and it was just like an attachment that wasn't taught to them. Mm -hmm. They sort of like imprinted and just clustered and followed me. Great. So what you're pointing out, Judy, is that there's already something kind of parental about this cloud, mm -hmm. right? It's like you follow it, it takes you to the right place, you know, you don't move until it moves, you know, you don't decide where it goes, you know, you follow it. So there's there's something parental about this image of the cloud. Um, and I think that's telling because it's this cloud that becomes in rabbinic literature, so now we're talking about post-destruction of the first temple, post-destruction of the second temple, but a couple of hundred years after the destruction of the second temple. So now I'm, I'm, I'm about to jump to like 200 CE. Right? But at that time, when the Judaism we know is being <laughs> developed, when the Talmud is being written, right, the Mishnah is being written, um, at that time they begin to use this word, Shekhinah. 
right, which comes from the word mishkan, tabernacle. Mishkan, tabernacle means the dwelling place. Shekhinah means the one who dwells, or the, really it means the indwelling, that which dwells. Um, it's the same as like the word re'iyah, seeing, or um, sifirah, counting. It's shekhinah, dwelling, right? It means dwelling. Uh, and that word becomes the word that the, that the sages use for any place that God shows up in more concentration than usual. Right? That's what they mean by Shekhinah. So they use Shekhinah to mean this divine cloud, right? This tangible, um, thing that, you know, that moves around, that you can see, that you can touch, that if you get too close to it, something bad might happen to you because it's really powerful and, and, you know, electric. Um, but they, they use it, for example, and we're going to look at some texts to mean, um, when people study Torah together, the Shekhinah is with them, right? When people are doing mitzvot, when people are welcoming the new moon, right, the Shekhinah is with them. So they use this phrase. Like an intensified presence of God. Something like that, right? And from a certain point of view, this is a philosophical problem, right? Which we're about to look at a text that deals with it as a philosophical problem. So what's the philosophical problem? If you say, right, when the people are gathered to study Torah, right, right, the God dwells with them in a particular way. God, God is always there, supposedly, so right. God is not there. Right, if God is equally <laughs> everywhere, what does it mean that God is thicker here? Like, right. what is that? Yeah. Right? right, that seems to imply that sometimes God is embodied, right, in a way that God can be thicker in one place than somewhere else. Um, that's not the Maimonidean God. Right, in which, right, God is just, you know, God exists on a plane that has nothing to do with physical existence, right? That has something, that has, that has, um, intimations of the body, right, in a certain way. So I want you to look on your page nine. This is all from Numbers Rabbah, or Bimidbar Rabbah. This is a rabbinic text from the same time as the Talmud. Um, it's a collection of interpretations and stories about the Torah. And it is a commentary on the text we just read, okay, on, you know, on the cloud coming into the Mishkan and filling it. Uh, so we're going to read a couple of pieces of this. So does someone want to read the first text on page 9? I guess we can go over. Yeah. Great From the creation of the world up to that hour, the Shekinah had never dwelt among the lower beings. But from the time that the tabernacle was erected, she did dwell among them. That's Numbers Rabbah. Thank you. Okay, so this text is dealing with the question of time. So what what is this what is this story about our text positing? What's different about the whole descent of the cloud into the sacred space? And until there was a, a place that was built for the Shekhinah to dwell, there was no place for her to dwell amongst the people. Great. So that by creating the sacred space, right, they summoned right, a, a particular manifestation of God's presence into their midst in a way that had not existed prior to that. Right. And there's something about the quality of the beings that feels seems important mm -hmm. that she didn't dwell among lower beings mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is not present in the sacred right. So that seems to imply that she was too exalted to dwell among lower beings, right? And that something about the tabernacle made it possible, right, for the Shekhinah to be right 
in the right to be in that space. And I'm already using she, but I actually shouldn't be yet for another hundred years because um, right, it, I mean it is a feminine noun, Shekhina, but here it really refers to the cloud, right? Can, can I ask the question about the tabernacle? Or, 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 or wait, about the tabernacle itself? Can I, ask a question about the tabernacle? I won't necessarily answer because we have to stay on this. Go but ahead. what do you want to no, ask? No, I'll wait. I'll okay. Wait. Um, can I just ask a question about um, the Hebrew? Yes, um, I'll read it for you. Actually, yeah, go ahead. So. Um, there's no actual word that says Shekhinah. Yes, there is. It's at the beginning of the written. third line. Oh, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. Right, that's something that never happened from the beginning of the world until now. It happened on that day. Right, until that hour, the Shekhinah didn't dwell in the Tachponim. That means in the lower worlds, right? Actually, the lower beings is is really not quite accurate. Tachtonim really means the lower worlds. It means the right, the, the physical world. Ela um, mishkan Rather, after the mishkan and forward, that was when she dwelled in the lower worlds. So the it's, so it's, it makes a, the sacred shrine really important, right? That that is the dwelling for the shrine in the lower world. Arthur, please. So. If if they're speaking about Shekhinah this way, mm -hmm. that means that it must have been in the vernacular. So it must so that right. So it must have been a topic that was um, spoken about, right. and here they're codifying it in some way. Right. So it must have been part of their culture, right? Right. Right. So that actually I hadn't quite thought about it in that way before, but that this so this is a word in parlance, right? The, 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 in in the time period in which rabbinic Judaism, which is you know the Judaism with the Shabbat and Kashrut and stuff that we know about, was being established, right? This is already a word that they know, right, and that they're using. Uh, so I wanted you to look at the next text, and then we're going to look at a few others. Um, so the middle text on the page. We'll just go around. Judith, that would be great. Like a cave by the sea, when the water enters it, it fills with water, but the sea is not diminished. So it was when the tent, with the tent of meeting, the Shekhinah filled it with her glory, but the world in no way lacked her presence. Mm -hmm. I find this gorgeous. Yes. This is like my favorite yes. rabbinic text ever. Yes. You know, it, it, but they're dealing with a really complex philosophical problem, right? Which is, so what does it mean to say that the Shekhinah filled the tabernacle? She's everywhere. Wasn't she already in the tabernacle? Like, what is that? Like, how do, how do I even understand that? So they're saying, well, it's like, you know, it's like a cave. The ocean comes in. The ocean, the ocean doesn't get any smaller, right? But the, the but the cave is suddenly flooded with the ocean. You know, so it's a great image. So this is how they deal with that issue of right. of if the Shekhinah or God is everywhere, how can it be more sunlight? Exactly. That's exactly it, right? And the Hebrew is really beautiful. The Ma'arashahinutunalsvatayam, the cave that's placed by the shore of the sea. The sea is roaring and it fills the cave. Um, but the sea isn't missing anything. Right? That's how the tent of meeting was filled from the radiance of the shrina. Uh, but the world didn't lack the shrina. Right? Uh, so do you understand the image that they're offering? It's really very beautiful. So in none of these texts, do you particularly see an image that, I, aside from grammatically, that I would label female? 
right? There's nothing here, right, that you would say is feminine rather than masculine, right? This is, I would say, more of a, a non-anthropomorphic image, right? It's an image of God as cloud, right? Or God, here it's God as ocean, right? So here's the interesting thing. Um, actually, and, and no, you know, we're going to stay on that. But I just want to say that in a couple of weeks, what we're going to see is that this image, which is basically not gendered, will become for them a gendered image. They will begin to talk about the Shekhinah as being like God's wife. They will begin to talk about the Shekhinah as leaving the temple like a, like a woman who's running, you know, who's a refugee who's running away, who's lost her husband. Like, they begin to use this image of the Shekhinah as the bereaved woman, which is a very, um, very rooted image in the ancient Near East. Like the divine woman, the bereaved divine woman, very, very old image. You see this in the descent of Inanna, where, uh, you know, there's a, there's a goddess weeping over her child. You see it in the myth of Isis and Osiris. They're the, Mary. Right. And it, that's exactly what I was about to say. Right. Mary, the, the figure of Mary is woman. totally <laughs> consistent with ancient Near Eastern iconography. So is that because they're trying to diminish her power by making her a victim, sort of? Um, like she's this divine mother figure, but she's slightly victimized by having this, this grief. So you're sort of feeling in awe of her, but sorry for her at the same time. Yeah, I, I want to save, this is great, I want to save it for like two classes from now, and we're going to spend the whole class on this, but hold that thought, because yeah, I mean, I think, yes, maybe, and I think it's also, I think there's a way that what I see in the development of the of the Israelite image of Shrina as mother, and particularly as, as um, <clears throat> refugee mother, is also an image of comfort, right? Because if you've just developed a theology in which God has chased you out of your land because you've sinned and isn't letting you back until you repent, right? That's not a very comforting image. That's actually a pretty scary image. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising to me that the same people who were very invested right, in that image of God suddenly had another part of God who was coming with them into exile and who loved them and who forgave them everything. So it's like, you know, you, you run from one parent who yelled at you to the other parent who didn't yell at you. You know, I, there, I think that one of the reasons there was a split between the Divine Father and the Divine Mother was that the Divine Father had gotten too scary. And they actually needed another image of God that did not feel so far away. Um, and therefore, the Shekhinah went from being a cloud all of a sudden to being a mother figure. Karen, please. I was going to say that even though I agree there's no feminine image in this, we learn to use the words like settle or dwelling mm -hmm. to to connote feminine. So I don't know right. when that happened, right. but I already feel it because of what we've done sure. past that time period. Absolutely, and so do I. And that's sort of how this how this is how a mythic image works. Right? Is that it gets layered onto over time. So when I go back and look at the cloud, I can't help but think Shrina, like my Shrina, Shrina who's like a mother bird, you know, nesting on her children, uh, because, you know, those images don't separate from me, right? I'm only peeling them apart to show you sort of the different time frames. Uh, but absolutely, as we layer onto it, right, it begins to have, right, it begins to take on that, you know, that feeling and that meaning. Sure. Is there a, okay. Where are we? Because I want to do a little meditation soon. We won't have time. Okay, we have another, yeah. So let's look at a couple of the rabbinic texts that I brought. This is on your page 10 and 11.
because I want you to see that they are uh, that they the way that the Talmud uses the uh, the word Shekhinah. Um, and probably, what's the best way to do this? I think we should look at the main text on the page, which is the central one. Some of these are so much fun. Okay. Um, this is the Talmud. This is from Brachot 6a. Um, and they're having a discussion about whether you should pray in the synagogue. Or why wouldn't you just pray at home? Right? Good question. All right. So actually, I think maybe I'll read this one. It has been taught, Abba Benjamin says, a man's prayer is heard by God only in the synagogue. And then they quote a proof text uh, to uh, uh, listen to the song and the prayer. Um, they're uh, Lishmo El Harina Valetzila. They're quoting a proof text. So Rabin Ben uh, Rabbi Ada says in the name of Rabbi Yitzhak, so how do you know that the Holy One of Blessing is to be found in the synagogue? So they quote something else. God stands in the congregation of God. Uh, this is from the Psalms. And how do you know that if 10 people, so this is minion, folks, so you wonder why you have to have 10 people to do certain things. Here it is. How do you know that if 10 people pray together, the divine presence is with them? Whether and, they're in the synagogue or not in the synagogue? Correct. Right. right, that God rests. So they're actually going to make the Shekhinah you know, rest on smaller and smaller groups of people. Uh, so right, if you have 10 people praying together, right, that brings the Shekhinah. How do you know that if God is, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna work with the proof text because it's just gonna get too complicated. How do you know that if three are sitting as a court of judges, the divine presence is with them? So they have a proof text about that. So a baked in, in other words, like for a conversion, right, or divorce, you need three rabbis. So also that invokes the Shekhinah. Um, and how do you know that if two people is, are sitting and studying the Torah together, the Shekhinah is with them? And then they, they bring another quote. Um, so you see what they're doing, right? They start out with the Shekhinah is only in places where there are lots of people. Then they go to ten people. This is like Abraham arguing with God, right? Then they go to three people. Now we're at two people. If you have a Chavruta with somebody, right, the Shekhinah is there. And finally, uh, I'm going to move down a little bit. How did you know that even if one person sits and studies the Torah, the Divine Presence is there? For it is said, in every place where I cause my name to be mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. And then they have an argument about, well, if the Shekhinah is with only one person, then why do you have to say she's with two people? Like, what's, you know, what's bigger about her being with two people? Um, and um, so they say, well, the, if there are two people, the words are written down in the Book of Remembrance, and say for Hezekiah. You know, one person, you know, you don't, you, you don't get the press, I guess. <laughs> um, but you can see that what they're arguing about is, so do you see how they're even a little fuzzy about, like, what the Shlina is? But, but that right? the energy builds with more people who are involved. Right. In it. The idea is that somehow the more people you have engaged in sacred activity, the more you feel it. Mm -hmm. Right? We can really apply this to our own experience. Mm -hmm. Right? You can sit and meditate on your own, and you can have a very powerful experience. I don't know about you, it's a lot easier for me to do it if I'm doing it with other people. Mm -hmm. Right? There's something about prayer with other people. It has aesthetics, it has, right, people holding you responsible to the practice. You're not suddenly going to get up and make a sandwich right in the middle of Shakri. Um, right? There, there are a lot of reasons why, uh, you know, why praying in community might actually help you. You know, if you're meditating, oh, I forgot to do something, I'll go do it, right? It's different when you're meditating with other people. Um, 
I'm going to think about that the next time I'm sure. On Friday, we're all going to be thinking about making a So turn the page this way so that you see Shabbat 30B. Um, it looks like this. Shabbat 30B. Yeah. Okay. Just one of you guys maybe want to read this? Um, yeah. Oh, but I need the other one, the one on the other side. Wow, that thing is The divide cool. presence rests? Yeah, that's it. There you go. The divine presence rests upon man neither through gloom, nor through sloth, nor through frivolity, nor through levity, nor through talk, nor through idle chatter, save through a matter of joy in connection with precept, as it is said, but now bring me a minstrel, and it came to pass when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon them. Okay, thank you. Sounds like the postman, you know, neither snow nor snow <laughs> or night. Where is this from? Sounds like it this is from not be depressed. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's some of that. The Jewish tradition has issues with depression. Um, but I'm going to give you a different translation. I don't actually love this one. The Shekhinah doesn't rest. Shora. They're using the word Shora. So the, what does the Shekhinah do? She rests on people. So, uh, so not in sadness. And not in and not in idleness, right? Not in laziness, uh, not in laughter, and not in uh, lightheadedness, which usually means flirtation, um, and not in sicha, which means ordinary talk. Um, but only uh, and not in foolish words, uh, but only in um, doing a mitzvah in joy. So clearly, this is a polemical text, right? It's it's attempting to inculcate in you, you know, a particular mindset. Um, I think this text has issues, but it all, you know, you know, if you're depressed, you really don't want to be told that not on top of everything else, the Shkina is with not you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, God doesn't like sadness. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Reb Nachman of Bratzlov is terrible about this. He's really terrible about it. Um, but what's great about this as a meditative text is basically it says, right, when you're going through all these emotion states that happen to you when you're meditating or praying, right, what you're trying to get to is a state of joy in the mitzvah, right? I'm, I'm in a state of joy, right? Not because everything is wonderful, but because I'm engaged in the practice, right? And that is bringing me joy. Um, so again, they're using the idea of the shechina as a kind of, it's like a kind of, you know, it's like the reward you get, right? For being in the zone, right? You're like, you're, you're doing the thing that you should be doing, like you're doing the thing that should connect you to God. And so God is there with you in a slightly more enriched way right, than usual, right? Whatever that means. Um, however, uh, we understand that. So, but it also makes perfect sense. I mean, yes. like I think we find that when you're with God, suddenly you feel like, oh, God's with you too. You know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you mean if you say another sentence about what you mean? Um, that if you take the time to. Uh, think about God or to bring God into your thinking, then by extension, you start to feel closer. Mm -hmm. So if you're making space, like the Mishkan, mm -hmm. right, then, so actually that, mm -hmm. that text then becomes very personal, right? I'm making myself into a sanctuary, right? And that is going to invite the divine presence to come here because I made space. So I'm able to feel that. And when you're depressed, it's kind of hard to feel that openness because when you're depressed, your energy is kind of descending inward and self 
surveyor. Well, it feels like even if we don't assume that depression is, you know, is necessarily about selfishness. Right. It, right. You don't it's feel not. like God it's is just, with you. You, right. feel you feel very yucky. narrow and shut down. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's actually teaching us something quite real about like what, right? And if we're distracting ourselves, right? The other thing that we do with our feelings to, sh you know, if we're shutting down our feelings is, oh, I'm, I'm going to talk about other people, right? I'm going to, I'm going to recite make my laundry sandwich. list, right? I'm going to make a sandwich, right? <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to eat, right? I'm going to do all these things to try to avoid my real feelings. Avoid. That's not actually probably a good environment to, uh, you know, to have well, uh, have consciousness yeah. of a. So this feels, this actually feels sort of modern to me. So I actually just want to take maybe a couple of minutes to think about. So this image, what I want to do in each class is talk about, so how does this image of the Shrina, and each week we're going to encounter a different image of the divine uh, feminine. How is, how does this, how does this image have a play in our lives? Like what might be useful about this particular way of looking at, at God? Yeah. Well, one of the things I like about it is God isn't discriminating, oh, you're special, so I'm going to hang with you, and you're smart, so I'm going to hang with you. That it feels like this is a God dwelling amongst all the people, and it fills all the people, and it doesn't feel like it's selective or... Right. Wonderful. So it's not like you have to be a holy person or an important person, right? You just have to be. You just have to be engaged in a mitzvah, right? You just have to be concentrating. That's all you need to do. And we're just space for God, and God will be there. Absolutely. God will fill it. Yeah. What about the concept of a moving meditation, though? I mean, it sounds like almost like like you can't be doing anything except something that's consciously a. Or maybe that's what it is saying. Maybe that's what it's saying that it's that it's a, a consciousness in what you're doing. It doesn't matter really what you're doing, but you have that consciousness in it because it's uh, maybe not. I'm not quite getting it. I mean, I think that we could do a bunch of things with this text, but I understand the text to be saying that right, when you're engaged in inviting the divine presence, which at the Talmud understands to be doing a mitzvah, right? Or, you know, that you might be in prayer, you might be in study, you might be doing something nice for somebody else, right? Uh, any of those things has the potential to invite God's <coughs> presence if you're doing it with kavanah, with consciousness. Right? So it doesn't mean you have to be sitting, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, right? You can be active. Having joy in a mitzvah, right, can be any mitzvah, right? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. only the mitzvah that you do, right, in <laughs> contemplation. Mm -hmm. What's that? At least that's how I understand it. What we just read said, bring me minstrel. You right. know, it, it's bring me song, bring me, you know, right. and then the Lord will be there. So it's. Mm -hmm. This concept to me is very comforting. Mm -hmm. God's not commanding or judging the Shekinah, just with me. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense of simple presence, right? right. The word it really means presence, right? It's not the Shekinah is coming to you to do anything that, you know, that has any sort of um, hortatory quality. It's just there. It's just there. It's simple presence. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think I, I felt that today on the way here. Um, when I was walking up the street, there was a woman pushing something that was too heavy for her to push. And I asked <coughs> to help her, and immediately, you know, the, the, the acknowledgement of her realizing that I would actually stop to ask to help, you know, immediately made me feel 
very blessed in the sense that, you know, it was just, it was immediate. I think that's exactly what they're, you know, what they're talking about. Arthur and Angela. So this is a quote that I love, which is, um, which takes uh, to this point and says, and when, and when you're feeling helpless, the antidote is to help someone else. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love the idea that if I am participating in this vote, it's not just that perhaps I'm bringing a good deed into the world, but that I give the divine the opportunity to concentrate, yes. and that the divine delights in concentrating around us. So it's a gift I give to the divine. Beautiful. I love that. And, and one of the ways that the, the later the Kabbalah will understand the Shekhinah, one of the names for the Shekhinah is the community of Israel. So that means us. Like one of the manifestations of Shekhinah is Torah. One of the manifestations of Shekhinah is Shabbat. One of the manifestations of Shekhinah is us. Right? So what does that mean? It means that right, when we're in that place, right, we're actually giving God an opportunity to live in our body. Right, to, to be present in us, um, which I find incredibly moving. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> so what I would like to do now, and this I hope is also going to be something that will be part of, uh, of each session, is I want to give us the opportunity to meet this face of God. And, you know, I'm sure many of you, like Judith, met, already met the face of God on your way here, but nevertheless. So I have a particular tradition of meditation, which is, um, um, which is guided visualization, um, which I call spirit journeying. Um, but, you know, if you, you should feel comfortable to be in whatever, you know, whatever mode you want to be. Um, and uh, you can follow what I'm offering you, or you can go off on your own and, and do your own meditation. That's, uh, that's all fine with me. But uh, I'm going to invite us into a space of quiet, and then I will, uh, I will offer some words uh, that you might want to follow. I think I would like to turn off the light. I think that that will help us. Let me see if we can get a dim without black. That's black. Um, There's light from the other room. room. Is this okay? Yeah. Because yeah. okay, I know many of you are tired, and some of you might go to school. <laughs> So in my practices and many meditative traditions, um, I start with the breath. And watching the breath gives us a focus and allows us to begin to quiet the mind. And I also like to begin with the breath. Breath is constantly going in and out of us. So it reminds us that we're really larger than ourselves, that what seems to be a separate body and being is really always in physical conversation with the rest of the world. And just take a moment to pay attention to the sensation of breathing. And one way to do this is to watch the moment when the breath is all the way out. When the breath is out of the room.
and as you're following the breath, I invite you to breathe into the body, into any places that feel like they need a little extra help. yourself to just be here in this present moment in whatever state of feeling you may be. And now as you breathe out, I invite you to imagine that you're walking in a cloud. Maybe you're on a mountaintop, maybe you're by a misty lake. You're walking in a thick cloud. Try to notice what's around you, what you see, and what you hear. This is a place where the divine presence rests. Noticing the sounds, the sensations, the feelings that arise as you're here. And as you continue to walk in the cloud, you observe that there is a shape, a form, coming toward you through the cloud. And this form is the Shekhinah. And I invite you not to edit yourself. However she looks, or he looks, or it looks, is what the screen looks like. And the Shekinah calls your name and comes toward you. And you stand with her in a cloud with the screen. And take this moment just to be, and just to feel what it's like to be present with the presence. And now the Shekhinah begins to lead you. And she guides you until you come to a clear, still pool of water, like a mirror. And the Shekhinah says to you, I want to give you a gift. I want to show you yourself when I am with you. And as you look down into the pool of water, you see an image of yourself. 
maybe this is a moment of significance that you're seeing, or maybe it's one of your daily activities. Whatever you see, the Shekhinah is saying to you, I am resting on you in that moment. Look into the pool of water until you can really see that the Divine Presence is resting on you in that place that you are seeing. Now you look upward, and the Shekinah is guiding you again. Back to the place where you started this journey. And she says to you, I want to give you a gift so that you will remember to be with me. accept this gift, whatever it is, whether it's an object or a teaching, or just a moment of calm. And when you are ready, thank the Divine Presence for being with you in this moment and other moments. And know that you can come back to this place if you should need to. And now you begin to walk back through the cloud. And as you do so, you become aware of your own breath, mingling with the calm. And now you are beginning once again to notice the sensation of breathing in your body. As you breathe in and out, allow the breath to bring you back to this space, into this place, on which the Shekhinah is also resting. feel ready, you can open your eyes. So I want to invite uh, people who will break up into groups of two or three. 
And if you want to share anything about what you saw, you certainly can. Or you may just want to share something about what it was like to do the meditation. Or something you're thinking about in this, in this moment after this session. So this is just a, maybe two minutes of time. Judy, I think we wouldn't want the light on. Judy? Goddess? Goddess, watch my phone. Your phone. Sorry, your phone. Thank you. So sorry. <laughs> All right, here comes the light, everybody. Okay. <coughs> you might want to pick someone you didn't call it. <laughs> <laughs> Should I stop? Is it? Huh? Yeah. 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 Yeah.